Welcome back to the business of biotech and happy holidays to you and yours. It's been another incredible year in biopharma. There's lots to celebrate from the continuance of record-breaking finance deals to a demonstration of pharmaceutical might and brilliance that brought the COVID vaccine to bear. And there's plenty to lament, like the lack of direction at the FDA and the drug pricing pinch. Those are a few of the big stories of 2021 that we'll be reflecting on today, and we'll be doing that reflecting with none other than my friend, frequent guest, and biopharma fiduciary virtuoso, Alan Shaw. Alan, welcome back to the show. Uh, Happy holidays, Matt. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. And uh, before we move too much further, I wanted to congratulate you on the new notch in your belt that you've added, uh, recent appointment to the Calcimedica Board of Directors. You added that to your CV in the late fall here. Um, now, it's a clinical stage, small mall company, but our, our band of biologics business leaders won't hold that against you, Alan. I'm quite jazzed about the, uh, the new team, the new company and what they're trying to do. They have a pr- pretty interesting technology. It's been around a while, you know, so some people might say the bloom has come off the flower, but I think their approach is revitalizing and, uh, and turning heads again. They certainly seem to have a, a drug that works. Uh, they have a crack channel technology that's calcium release activated channels, and they really work across an array of uh, inflammatory diseases. Uh, companies historically been focused on pancreatitis uh, based on data. The drug appears to be active. Uh, and it's a, really a question of which way we point it. It has good, real, relevant clinical data in COVID. It, it, it works in pancreatitis. And based on the recent data, you know, there looks like there's a couple of different ways we can go from a respiratory perspective. And it's a great team. So really excited to be uh, joining them and helping them uh, get to the next level. Yeah, good stuff. Congratulations on that. What is that number number six? Uh, once they go public, they will be uh, number be my sixth public board. Right okay, now, cool. it's I still got uh, the five, including the thumb, and I'm looking on the other hand now. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> like the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we get into some uh, reflections on the year in bio, let me ask you uh, personally, what are you reflecting on personally during this time of uh, the season of gratitude and nostalgia, Alan? How's your how's your year been? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for asking. You know, I I think it's been a great year uh, on on a lot of different levels. You know, we started the year with a lot of uncertainty. You know, we're still in the midst of the pandemic with hopes of a vaccine that might be elusive and we weren't sure how that would even be distributed and we're uh, we're entering the year now where I, I don't want to get too much in front of my skis but yeah. i uh you know it looks like we're getting close to turning the page of the chapter on COVID, particularly with the recent data uh that pfizer put out on their pill uh, which I think, you know, it gives us a couple of different ways to manage the disease. Now you can go with the prophylactic approach where the majority of us have taken on, at least here in the United States. And, and for those who think they know better or the anti-vaxxers, you know, we now have a, a morning after pill that we should be <laughs> able to, uh, help manage the disease. If you can identify it, you know, data is pretty remarkable. If you identify the disease in three days, I think it's like 89%. If it's within five days, I think just 
still somewhere in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a number of ways to manage this. So it shouldn't necessarily invoke the fear or the inhibition in society as it as uh, as it has rightfully for the last couple of years now uh, or nearly two years. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite excited about that. You know, maybe it's a little bit of back to the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you can't obviously can't talk about 2021 without talking about COVID. So let's let's ponder there for me. You know, let's let's dwell there for a minute. Um, I mean, what do you I mean, what do you think about that? So the Pfizer pill in the context of the greater vaccination effort, you know, as of, uh, you know, as of our recording date, um, I believe there's been some push to. Uh, what a federal appeals court is, is pushed back on the on the employee. I'm sorry, employer mandate, the Biden employer mandate around vaccines. We're looking at, you know, sliding into 2022. We're looking at somewhere around a 60 percent full vaccination rate. Bit of a plateau there. Does the pill uh, change that dynamic from your perspective, that dy- that that vaccination push, the, the necessity of moving the needle beyond 60 percent full vaccination? It's a it's a it's a fair question and certainly one that's going to be bounced around like a tennis ball, I think, um, you know, for what my two cents is worth. You know, I think there's a couple of perspectives here. You know, if you want to stay in front of this thing and keep the, the, the virus from mutating, you know, the vaccine is really still the best way to manage the disease and, and, and for humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really always been about humanity. And really one of the things that I, I just always shake my head about is how much of a political, how much COVID has been politicalized uh, over this period of time. It's about mankind and humanity, and it shouldn't be a political statement whether you get vaccinated, not vaccinated, wear a mask, not wear a mask. Um, so that that that's the sad part that you know you have to wear a jersey on your view of of, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think, you know, in terms of humanity, I think the vaccine is still the right way to go because you minimize the risks of mutation. But that has to be a shared belief. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to constantly be fighting it. Uh, I, I, you know, given that we're this far into it and the fact that people are, you know, getting fired, they're digging in on this issue. Right. I mean, it's become an issue that, you know, that's been polarizing. Um, so given that. You know, just from a matter of being practical, I think the Pfizer pill will allow us to bridge the gap of philosophical beliefs and kind of get on with it. And I think COVID is with us and, you know, it's going to be beholden to the industry. The industry rallied. I mean, that's another thing that I, I, I think when I reflect on the year, you know, the industry has, has really stepped up here and done things on break breakneck speeds on unprecedented level. And, you know, the innovation is going to continue to be there. So I think we have the wherewithal to to stay on top of this. It's just, you know, where are we devoting our resources and whether it's the best way. And, you know, this is kind of like, um, I wouldn't call it a self-inflicted or man-made, but by perpetuating, uh, by not vaccinating, uh, at least in my view, you're now perpetuating, you know, the cycle of COVID-19. Yeah. 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 And, you know, if if we don't move beyond uh, that, that 60% plateau, um, I don't, one of my concerns is that we're going to be in, uh, in, in we're not going to have very good footing, not going to have very good purchase when the next big 
pandemic or health emergency uh, approaches, um, right? Like we, you know, there's a, we've demonstrated an amazing, uh, an amazing feat. The agility, uh, you know, obviously has been historic, um, but it, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to design your next play when the first play is still unfolding. What do you think about that? What, what should we be concerned about uh, beyond COVID uh, that, you know, perhaps our, 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 our eye is not on the, the ball. Uh, there's there's a lot of lessons here, right? You know, we were caught flat-footed in in our in our country's preparation for this, and there's warning signs of other healthcare crisis. You know, the one that uh, I, I personally believe is really looming is the uh, the superbug disaster. You know, mm-hmm. the antibiotic. Uh, resistance is at a point where we need new drugs yet the way they the system works the economics are working all the antibiotic companies have been effectively voted off the island you know they've been uh, they, they haven't been able to commercialize successfully and if you can't monetize your assets there's that's going to have a, a knock-on consequence with investment dollars invest um and the ability to move forward and we are at a, pro, a crisis level there that's probably you know the best secret known secret right now and and yet there's really not a lot being done on it i mean there was a movement I would say about five, six years ago where there was legislation, you know, kind of in the spirit of orphan drug legislation that kind of was in the spirit of kind of stimulating uh, the attention to this issue. Uh, I don't think it was enough. And you, you can see it. You know, there's a handful of antibiotic companies now. A lot of these companies haven't been able to work. And, and I think one thing that uh, what we've learned from COVID is that antivirals are now fashionable again. You know, people can see how you can make money there. And there's now, you know, where there's an opportunity to make money, you will find investment dollars. But I think there needs to be a change in our whole approach to that, you know, whether it's the incentives, the credits, the IP, um, and even the way it gets commercialized, you know, right now, it's kind of the way the market works is an antithesis to, you know, um, dealing with antibiotic resistance because the pricing of antibiotics are so low. The only way to make money on it is on volume. And when you distribute antibiotics on volume, you're, by definition, creating resistance. Yeah, uh, It should be priced like a, a drug that saves lives, like we price other drugs as opposed to a commodity. And that that's a fundamental approach that I think has to, has to be flipped on its head. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. It's a, it's a great point because I'm, you know, if you look at it just from a market perspective, it's almost like, you know, you mentioned antivirals are, 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 are cool again, uh, almost akin to um, what, what we saw with vaccines in the past 18 months going from, you know, not being cool, um, not being necessarily an efficient path to, to drug, <laughs> drug development or commercial success, uh, long development times, not sexy at all to, I mean, savior, right? <laughs> Just the absolute and an incredible, incredible market. Um but yeah, what that that uh, that dilemma around distribution um, and and application, I guess, in the patient population contributing to the problem sounds like a pretty big one to tackle. There has to be a change in philosophy, uh, fundamental change in philosophy, and uh, and and view these that there's a need for life saving products, and right right now we're not 
paying for them. You know, it's, you know, there's all, all the time it comes down to, there needs to be motivation for innovation. And if you start tapping down on, on, on the, the, the economics associated with these endeavors, innovation is just going to follow. It's like water. Water is always going to go to the lower, lowest point of resistance. And innovation is going to follow that too. If you're going to build up barriers around it, the money is going to follow the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's shift gears here and talk about Alzheimer's. Another big story of 2021. Um, you know, we saw the highly controversial approval of Biogen's Aduhelm, Aduhelm, Aduhelm. How do you pronounce that appropriately? I guess if you buy Biogen stock, or if you're on the product, you can call it whichever way you want. <laughs> say, it, <laughs> say it fast enough that no one will understand anyway. Uh, we saw that approval, uh, Aducanumab, um, the, the brand name to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. That approval is at a ripple effect well beyond Biogen's four walls. Um, Again, it was controversial. We'll get into the why. What's your take? Uh, from a noteworthy event, it was definitely uh, a watershed moment uh, for the industry. Um, you know, we talked about it earlier in the year. I thought it would be interesting. I ne- never anticipated being this interesting mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day. But it, it has a lot of implications uh, in, in a number of different areas. You know, you know, the first question was raised. Um, has the FDA lowered the bar? You know, this this decision went against the advice of really their advisory board and the underlying scientific evidence uh, of efficacy. So that 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 was a um, has a lot of implications, and it also sends a signal of whether or not this is just a one off, or whether or not you know we've really moved the goalposts a little bit. Uh, and and you saw that a little bit. You know, um, you know. Uh, a the development in ad was kind of like a desert you know it was you know you could see so many uh, gravestones of failed experiments and a whole bunch of people who've spent you know decades pro, uh you know pounding the table about the amyloid uh plaque hypothesis mm-hmm. and yet you know it seemed like at least from my primitive knowledge, you know, the more I learned about AD, the less I knew about AD. And it seemed like, you know, the scientists weren't far off from that either. Right. So, you know, being able to understand the disease is the first part of treating it. Um, so it's been an area of a lot of frustration. And, and, and accordingly, there's been a lack of investment dollars there because people felt that, you know, you were going to fail. Uh, what we have certainly seen consequently to this, given that it is such a huge market, that people are repointing their uh, resources to AD programs. It's, you know, it's now, okay, maybe you can get a drug approved. If you don't have to show efficacy, you know, why, what's wrong with my drug? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, you know me, I'm a simple-minded Pennsylvania boy, but that, 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 that statement right there just leads to a a host of questions, you know, about about what the implications are for, um, you know, for biopharmas as they develop, not just in AD, you know, not just in AD, but in you know, in the context of this conversation in AD, as they develop their their strategic uh, their, their their regulatory strategies. How how does how does this this decision 
responsibly influence the development of, of your regulatory strategy? It's, it's a, it's, um, it's a great question. I'm not sure if there's as many answers as there used to be. Um, you know, there's a wild card here, you know, and the wild card is, is what were the factors that contributed to the decision to approve this in the first place? And, you know, Sarepta had one not long ago uh, in Duchenne uh, muscular dystrophy that was mm-hmm. also a bit of an, an upset uh, call. And, and, you know, it's it certainly what I what I left me after the uh, Sarepta decision. Uh, left me with the impression that uh, patient advocacy groups are very, very, are increasingly becoming relevant in terms of the way the FDA is considering things. And, and that's a lot about clamoring for something for a drug when there are no real alternatives, right? Uh, there are no real alternatives in AD. At the time, Duchenne didn't have many alternatives. You know, there seems to be a lot of uh, development in that area, uh, which I've always been puzzled for an often disease, but it's um, as alternatives. But you know, it, it therefore speaks speaks to the fact that when you don't have an alternative, people really want hope, and and there's a question of where hope should be afforded by. You know, if you've got something that's not efficacious, is that really hope? Um, you know, that, that's, that's a big question. Um, but also I would say going beyond that, you know, who's this, who's responsible for dispensing hope, who's responsible for paying for hope and are insurance companies responsible for hope or pay uh, responsible for outcomes. So, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of, uh, as a consequence of that, uh, some shifting, uh, in in turn, or maybe passing the buck in terms of, well, it's not my problem, it's your problem. Let, let me get these patient advocates off my back and uh, let you guys be the bad guys. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it really opens up, uh, uh, you know, a box of worms. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I had a conversation earlier in the year with an a, a executive from an Alzheimer's drug uh, development company, clinical stage, who lauded, you know, a he, he, he lauded the decision as progress. Like we've, we've, you know, sure there's, <laughs> there's some, uh, you know, there's, there, there's some, some question around efficacy. There's, it's a controversial decision, but uh, you know, we, we need to see progress. You know, I don't know that that holds what, when you're, when you're talking about the FDA, the, you know, the, the global gold standard for uh, drugs, drug safety and, 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 uh, and development, I don't know that that, progress for progress's sake argument holds water, but there's this, you know, I've, I've also heard since I've been in this space, the worn out cliche several times that the FDA has three jobs, safety, safety, and safety. And getting back to this bigger conversation, it makes me wonder whether, you know, these surrogate endpoints that are effectively in this, in this case, inconsequential to patient outcomes do become, you know, some semblance of a regulatory strategy for, for biopharmas. Um, whether it's acceptable for that, which is potentially negligible, I know this is strong language, but potentially negligible for patients to be good for business. Is that okay? You know, I think when you look at 
you know, I, I try to look at this very objectively. And, you know, when the just drug came, was approved, you know, ISA came out with some very uh, mm-hmm. uh, critical uh, perspective on it. And it really comes down to the value proposition. Is there a value proposition here? I mean, um, and, and it begs the question, is the FDA just about approving the drugs and it's really about how you monetize it? So it's just one gate. And there's still a commercial gate in terms of monetization, you know, it may, you know, where, you know, it may be that that's the right separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And, and we're looking at safety. If it's not going to hurt you, then why can't you take it? But the question is, who's going to pay for it? And maybe you're just passing the burden of uh, economic value mm-hmm. uh, and the value proposition to the payers, which is another issue that, we probably need some adult beverages to take on, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I think that's where you're going to start to see, uh, the rubber hits the road and you're seeing that now with Adelham, um, where it's been approved. They came back and actually narrowed the label after it was approved because of the controversy. I don't think I've ever seen that movie before. Uh-huh. That's a think of first. And it's right now it's not selling. You know, it's not selling uh, even close uh, to anybody's expectations. And that's telling that says something. Um, I don't think there's enough data out to determine whether it's the doctors who don't believe in it and don't want to bother their patients with it or whether or not things are being prescribed, but they're not they're getting stuck, you know, converting into into into, uh, dispensing. Yeah. Or I mean, you know. One of the, you know, one of the, I guess, novel things about Alzheimer's as a, as an indication, as a disease is that, you know, it's one of those situations where doctors are treating, it's true to some degree of any disease, I suppose, but particularly in Alzheimer's, doctors are treating not just a patient, but a, but a family, right? I mean, it's a very familiar involvement in in Alzheimer's care decision-making is it, it doesn't happen without it, you know, and there, there could be a perception effect happening there too around you know this was household news it wasn't just biopharma industry news it was you know it was it was cnbc cnn abc this was on the nightly news this story um so there could be skepticism from a patient population and and family you know caregiver standpoint you know that that's really capitalism working right you know um you can get something approved, but there may not be a market for it if it doesn't work. And maybe that that's an approach too. the FDA doesn't want to be involved with that. You know, we know it's not going to we don't believe it's going to hurt anybody. And mm-hmm. we'll let other people decide whether or not they take it or not. Uh, yeah. But that would be a shift in the way the FDA is currently uh, or has historically been viewed. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Yeah. Well, so while we're talking about the FDA, let's talk about um, 
how the FDA is viewed and what the leadership situation, what, what, what's the, what's the leadership paradigm, I guess, at the FDA right now. I mean, this, you know, we're talking about Janet Woodcock ultimately being responsible for this aducanumab uh, decision. Um, she remains in a, I don't know, what's the official word interim uh, capacity uh, as director of the FDA. Um, I, I'm curious about your take on that. It occurs to me that, um, you know, this is a position who, well, first of all, what, what, what are the implications of this lack of permanency in, in leadership, especially coming off of a Gottlieb era that was, you know, very much lauded as, as, as success, exemplary of success at the FDA? You know, the Gottlieb era was an enlightened era. You know, it was really a very progressive era. And I, I think it really inspired what we talked about earlier in the year. You know, I, I think, you know, when you don't have a captain in the seat, you know, it's hard for the ship to really move effectively. And, you know, this is an area of, uh, of really of a self-inflicted injury, you know, for um, obviously for political reasons, the seat has been held open from since since the inception of the Biden presidency, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Janet Woodcock, by all conventional metrics, was more than qualified to become the uh, the head of this. And instead, they've really made her more of a lame duck uh, mm -hmm. by allowing this to be drawn out as long as it has. And, you know, her term is, is, is has come to an end or will be coming to an end by the time this, this, this recording hits. And, um, you know, that, as I understand, it was all political. I think she got tarred for some of the opioid um, issues. You know, again, it was not not trying to when you try to please 100 percent, you please nobody. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think she got caught in the middle of all of that. Um, and, and I think that's, that would, uh, consequently that's introduced risk. Uh, certainly the capital markets are viewing, right. Uh, the FDA as a risk now that previously, uh, was not considered. Um, and there's, you know, everything that we've said, there's much more uncertainty at, at the, at the agency now than there ever has been. Yeah. Uh, it's a dangerous game though, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, listen, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm qualified to have a conversation around political strategy and whether it makes sense for, you know, a, a political, you know, a, a one particular administration to uh, maintain someone's position in office um, to effectively tar them. Um, but uh, again, simple-minded, if, if the commissioner is appointed by the president, w which she is confirmed by the Senate, which is a current Dem majority influenced by the, Commissioner's boss, the FDA commissioner's boss is the HHS secretary, who our current HHS secretary is an ex Democratic congressman, attorney general in California, you know, long, long term Democrat. Um, again, naive question, maybe, on, but why the inaction on the position? Why haven't we seen a unanimously agreed upon, you know, Democratic leaning commissioner of the FDA? You know, it's it's. The question, I think, really took, raises the, the fact that, you know, are the Democratic Party uh, a homogeneous group or a heterogeneous group? Mm. And I think there there's incredible number of, of, of fractions uh, within that that alliance 
uh, of Democrats. And I, I think the, the folks on one end of the spectrum didn't necessarily, but they were making a lot of noise and getting in the way, uh, I think, of some of the more uh, pragmatic choices that perhaps were viewed as being pro-industry, too close to industry, and, uh, you know, looking for diversification considerations. So I think things like that um, may have contributed to the lack of a um, unanimous candidate that people were able to get behind. Yeah. I want to, I want to revisit something that you said around risk and dig in a little bit deeper there. You know, you mentioned that this open FDA seat introduces risk that, you know, whether it should have, could have, would have been settled by now, the risk, risk remains. So open that up for us a little bit, Alan, what, what risk, you know, how, how do you define that risk? What does that risk look like? Um, I think the risk is the risk of the, of the unpredictable. I think the FDA was a little bit more predictable, you know, notwithstanding the Aduham approval, you know, was going down a much more progressive approach. And it looks like, you know, kind of almost in the spirit of like trying not to be too close to the industry, you know, there there's concern about some of the decisions recently. There's been a number of um, clinical uh, failures. You know, it's going to be something interesting to watch. So there's there's this tension right now that the FDA is now a wild card. You know, we're now rather than playing with a, a full deck, you know, there's jokers in that deck now. And, and you're just not sure when one is going to be played. So, and I think that's further that perception. Nothing is done to, to kind of dissuade that perception, particularly without a permanent commissioner. Mm-hmm. You know, when the agency lacks leadership uh, to set long term goals and an agenda like Gottlieb did, you know, Gottlieb was very clear. It's almost like the way the Fed works now. I mean, they telegraph things. People know, people like predictability. It's almost like what we're seeing in, in Congress now. The fact that you can have a stalemate is good because nothing gets done. It's predictable. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of that, uh, the unpredictability in there. And, and the fact that there seems to be pressure to be anti-industry. Which is yeah. ironic, given the fact that the industry has rallied during COVID. Uh, you would think that maybe we'd be starting to shed a little bit of that bad boy, evil empire persona. Yeah, well, we'll uh, one of the other topics on my agenda to talk about with you, we'll probably touch on that a little bit around drug pricing. I'm not ready to move there just yet, though. I want to, I want to, I want to dwell on the uh, the FDA situation just a few minutes longer. Does anybody even want this job? Um, you could, it's certainly a thankless job, uh, for sure. Um, it's There's a lot of special interest groups, and it's become uh, highly politicalized. You know, it might make some sense since we're talking about human welfare, right? You know, it goes back to what I was saying. It's, you know, it's a shame that COVID is such a polarizing political uh, focus. But it might be interesting to consider. I think it also touched on your question earlier that maybe consider an appointment that transcends, you know, presidential terms. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, again, I don't know how practical that is since I think the average FDA commissioner lasts about two years. Yeah, life expectancy in the seat's not very long. But it would, I I think you got to try to put distance around, you know, how, how you get the seat. You know, decisions should be made much more objectively than perhaps they are. Yeah, <clears throat> there's talk about uh, 
Uh, in, uh, I guess, early November, there was some talk about bringing Robert Califf back. Uh, what, what's your take on him? Is he the man for the job? And I asked that, you know, with a caveat, because I, you know, this predates my time in the space. Um, but back when he was FDA commissioner, I believe during the Obama administration, um, he was uh, had a p- perhaps almost as equally controversial approval as as Aduhelm in his approval of Ateplerson um, for I, I believe MDM, uh, which I think he effectively deferred to, to Janet Woodcock at the time. Um, I, with with that preamble, what's what's your take on that that potential, which may, by the way, have have completely changed by the time we go to go to air with this one. But like as we sit here in November, uh, that, that there's some chatter around that anyway. Yeah. And I think they they have to make a decision right there. Uh, it's the shot clock is winding down, so they have to put up the ball. Yeah. So uh, I think he's you know, he he's been in the seat before. Right. You know, but if you peel the onion, you know, he was a caretaker. I think he was there for less than a year. And he uh, but he I think probably the biggest thing going for him is that he's been confirmed before, mm-hmm. which makes makes him by definition an appealing choice because people believe he may successfully complete the confirmation process again. Nobody wants to put somebody up who's going to get shot down. I think now it's almost like we, we we're out of time. We have to put someone up. And, you know, he didn't do enough while he was there. Yes, he was in the seat for the Sarepta approval. Uh, but, I don't, you know, he, he was there for less than a year. I don't think he really had the ability during that time to really put his stamp or his leadership there. So I'd still say he's a question mark. He's kind of viewed a little bit, uh, I think, a little pro-industry. So, you know, he'd be a, a, a choice that everyone could be happy with, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know know enough about him to know if uh, if you think if you think he's the man who um, could could be tasked with, you know, some of those things you mentioned around easing, easing the burnout and boosting morale and, and bringing some credibility back to the perception, public perception of the FDA? You know, it's a start, you know, um, certainly a start right now. Uh, it, the boat is rudderless and I think it needs the direction. I think it needs new energy and needs new vision. Uh, I'd like to think that they've taken a year to deliberate putting someone into the seat, that that person will be qualified. You know, we don't have time. You know, we've lost a year. And as you've heard me say before, time is the enemy. Uh, so ho- hopefully the situation is resolved by, uh, with clarity by the time uh, we go on the air. Yeah. All right. Well, sticking with politics, Alan, you just just sort of alluded to this, but in in November, also the the Democrats unveiled a drug pricing plan uh, that, you know, at face value sounds like some some good news for patients and payers. I think there are some Medicare caps, um, drug pricing limits, uh, but obviously, you know, it could be uh, perceived as as not such good news for for drug companies. Um, What's your take? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I'd say it was a compromised uh, solution, again, in the spirit of everyone claiming uh, victory or you can claim loss. I think that there's certainly been some concessions there. You know, it's the start of something. You know, I think they can pick 10 drugs to negotiate in terms of Medicaid. So it, it is, it's a new wrinkle, but I, I'd still say from an industry perspective, it was mild in terms of the spectrum of different possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, would, I would say that 
uh, overall, the industry should be pretty pleased with the outcome. Uh, overall, I think they successfully can again uh, on, on the issue. Uh, I don't think that the issue is going away, but it's, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, it's almost like Muhammad Ali's rope dope I think that the industry has been very successful at just wearing people down and uh, taking its lumps. And, you know, you know, there's these marginal uh, concessions at, at the end of the day. I think the real change at some point, and we can talk about that likely another time, is uh, about the payer system, because I think that's really where um, there's probably a need, a, a, a bigger need. Yeah. Okay. You know, so you don't, you're not necessarily translating uh, the the momentum around this drug pricing plan as devastating news to to you know related to the expense and cost of drug development to the, to the biopharm industry. No, I'd, I'd probably put it more in the spirit of happy holidays than, yeah. uh, <laughs> than, than that. I, I mean, there's always a risk of, of having unintended consequences on innovation and, you know, may, I, I would put that as marginal here. I'd say net, net, I think uh, innovation continues to win. Yep. All right, cool. Okay. And then, uh, you know, as I mentioned from the outset of today's conversation, the, 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 the finance deals out there in 2021, just on fire. Once again, capital markets are lit up, uh, as, as we turn the corner. Um, I know you and I have had some conversations around, uh, you know, perhaps, some uh, trep, trep, I don't know if trepidation is the word, but concern that that might be changing uh moving forward but as of right now the the markets are still you know beyond uh beyond healthy what's your take on that it begs the question where do we go from here you know it's been a uh a golden ride you know from a biotech perspective we've had a, a decade of unprecedented uh run uh, the capital markets are doing very well. I would say that, you know, if you look at within the biotech sector, we've, we're, we're, we're running. I wouldn't say we're running as hot. I wouldn't say we're running as hard as we have been running. Uh, I think it's been a, generally a tough year for biotech. I think there's people slowed down uh, at the end of this year. You know, mm-hmm. there's been some recent activity that suggests that maybe people are, are, are looking at some value opportunities. But, I, I, you know, right now, uh, with the Fed tightening, with the backdrop of inflation, there's a lot of macro issues that go beyond the, the fundamentals of our industry. Uh, I think our industries are generally insulated from a lot of these macro issues. You know, the drug works, the drug doesn't work. You're going to help patients. You're not going to help patients. It doesn't matter what the price of bread is. So those, those things are in fact insulated, but that the, that the concern would be the thing to be sensitive to is the availability of, of, of financial resources or really where the allocation to life sciences are going to be mm-hmm. going, going forward. We, we've definitely had our allocation in, in recent years. Um, 
But now with with um, interest rates going up, there's opportunities for people to get other types of risk-adjusted type of returns. I still think the returns in biotech are unprecedented. The ability to make an impact on society are unprecedented. So people are going to continue to want to have exposure there. My sense, of, my general sense is that probably the buzzword is discerning. I think people are going to be a lot more discerning uh, from this point forward. Um, and it's not going to be as easy as it was for some companies. And I think the interesting consideration there is when you look at clinical uh, uh, attrition rates uh, and the fact that many of these parade of companies, I mean, this year alone, we've had 91 IPOs versus I think 78 last year. So to your point, been a banner year from that perspective, but none of these companies are fully funded. So uh, it, it begs the question, if the benevolence of investors uh, are not there, if the companies aren't executing the traditional clinical attrition, it's not that anybody's doing anything wrong. It's just the fact that most, most of these experiments don't work. It's going to be an interesting dynamic uh, yeah. to look out for. What's your uh, on on the discerning note? You know, you mentioned that uh, perhaps discerning is the word um, that'll be descriptive of, of where things are headed. What's your advice in that context for uh, biopharma execs, new new and emerging, you know, formative uh, biopharma companies, um, CFOs such as yourself? Um. You know, I, I think one, one thing is don't assume the party is going to continue at some point. The punch bowl is going to get pulled. So you, you need to think about, you know, um, resource allocation. I think you want to think about how you gate your expenses. Make sure you don't get too much in front of your skis. And as things are de-risked, you can lift your gate or at least be aware of what risks that you're taking. You know, a lot of companies don't even consider that sometimes. So yeah. I, I would certainly look at gating your expenses, looking at your uh, allocation of resources and, and start planning for that rainy day because uh, it's likely coming. Yep. All right. That's uh, it's 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 a topic that we're going to, you know, we've we've talked down about tackling that one on an episode coming up here in, uh, you know, early 2022 and kind of digging a little bit deeper. I'm looking forward to that conversation and learning more from you on that. The, the payer conversation is another one. Let's make a let's make an agenda right here in front of our, our, our audience. Uh, we got pay. We're going to what are we going to tackle in 2022? You and I, what topics can, can our can our our, our listeners look, look forward to. Oh, we'll certainly take on the talk about the capital markets and we'll have a lot more hindsight at that point. Yeah. Uh, certainly the payers is, I think, is a dynamic that is worth paying attention to continue to pay. It's maybe more akin to a glacial move, a glacial, mm -hmm. glacial moving, but it's, it's certainly something to be mindful of, particularly if we're going to see more instances uh, of the FDA approving products and really relying on the, the payers as the uh, the arbiters of value at, at, at the end of the day. I think uh, M&A market is something to look at, particularly mm -hmm. as the capital markets may potentially dry up. Therefore, people get get pushed into suitors' arms, maybe get more uh, more reacquainted with their current valuations as opposed to looking at the rearview mirror. I think we've seen some some evidence of that. So th those would be a couple of things to be, uh, I think, on the lookout for, things that we can put on our uh, our agenda for next year. Well, good. It's on, it's on record now, so we're committed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, good stuff, Alan. I, uh, we're, we're running short on time, so I'm going to wrap it up uh, for now. I appreciate uh, once again, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's uh, you, you mentioned when I said, Hey, I want to talk about some stuff. What do you want to talk about? We, we landed on some topics and you mentioned, Hey, it's kind of like back to the future. We kicked this thing off. I don't know, 80 some episodes ago with a, a rapid fire conversation on some trends and topics of the day. And I really appreciate you for your willingness to, um, jump on this show and try to follow along with my disjointed, often naive and simplistic questions on these topics. You're a, you're a sport for subjecting yourself. And as I've said before, risking your professional credibility by associating yourself with me. Well, you, you, you know, uh, you know, you have to take your chances in life, but <laughs> <laughs> you're taking one uh, but it's always a pleasure always fun and uh certainly to be continued happy holidays to everybody yeah thanks alan so that's alan shy matt pillar this is the business of biotech and whatever you're celebrating this month we uh we wish you health happiness and joy as you celebrate it the business of biotech is produced by bioprocess online and partnership partnership with cytiva who's been an amazing partner thus far and who i'm happy to announce will remain a loyal supporter of this podcast and the biopharma leaders it serves throughout the coming year. To help me thank Cytiva for its longstanding support, head over to CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech and check out all the great resources curated there. Also check us out at BioprocessOnline.com, subscribe to my newsletter, and if you like this pod, subscribe, give us five stars. In the meantime, happy holidays and thanks for listening.